You're listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee. To learn more about us, visit our website at gracereformed.org. And now, today's sermon. Well, turn with me, believe it or not, to John chapter 18. <laughs> yes, we are back in John. I'm excited for what I'm about to share with you this morning. Uh, anytime we can dive deeper into who Jesus is and what his death means for us is an exciting moment for me as a pastor. Yeah. I've, I've really loved my week as preparation. Now I'm going to, I must warn you that most likely what I'm about to share with you might be a new part of the story, not new in like I discovered it, but new that you may not have heard of it before. Or maybe I should say you haven't thought about it in this way before. One of my greatest joys as a pastor, as your pastor, is digging into God's word each week to bring you the riches of God's love in story form. And I told someone this a week ago that when I prepare my sermons, I literally have faces in my mind as I study. I think about you and your life and what your struggles are and what you're going through. And it's not very often that I go throughout a week where someone isn't on my mind as I'm preparing a sermon. Now, that could sound good and that can sound bad. You may be thinking, great, what sin is he going to preach about today that's pointed at me? And I don't think of it in that way. It is more of how will this encourage so-and-so in this circumstance. I am amazed at how God strengthens my faith over and over Again and again, with profound complexities of this redemptive story, did it again to me this week in John. So turn with me quickly before actually we look at John 18. I need you to turn to the book of Acts because it's helpful to you for you to understand a context. Sometimes looking back at a story is helpful before you look into the story. So Luke records some statements from Peter that are important for me to read before I explain to you What's happening here in John 18? So Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at Acts 2 and then Acts 4 real quick. This is what Peter says. He says, this Jesus, Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's very important that you pay attention to what Peter is stating here because he is about to explain to them the history of Jesus, and it was not an accident. It said it was the definite plan. It wasn't the adjusted plan. God didn't react and then come up with the plan. It was based on the knowledge of God before events took place. Chapter 4, verse 27. Chapter 4 and verse 27, this is what Peter says later. For truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Peter is describing here that the events that unfolded through Israelites and through Pontius Pilate was actually the hand of God fulfilling the plan of God. So it was not an accident. The entire death of Christ was Never a coincidence. Every moment from the, every minute from the moment of Christ's birth to his ascension 
was ordained by God for the purposes of rescuing you. And Peter is pointing back at these events, just like the prophets pointed toward the events, which uh, Peter will go on to say that the that Jesus fulfilled every prophecy that was set before him. So the details of Jesus' life is what gives us hope and increases our faith in the gospel, which is the whole design. John says later on, John in chapter 21, that he wrote these things that we might believe. So just when you think you know everything there is about the gospel, you are reminded how wonderfully complex it is And I promise you, you will never reach the depths of the understanding of the gospel. Most people think, well, it's pretty simple. I'm a sinner. Jesus is a savior. Gospel completed. Wrong. It is far more than just a simple statement. I would even go on to say the gospel is too deep for anyone to truly grasp all of its wisdom. Because the gospel is about a person, and the person himself, Christ, is far more complex than we could ever imagine. So I encourage all of you, all of us, to never be satisfied with our understanding of God's redeeming work. This is why I'm bothered by the phrase, yeah, but there's more to the Bible than the gospel. And I'm not quite sure what Bible they are referencing. And I will say, the gospel is what fuels our hope, and hope is all we have. So that leads us to John chapter 18. This morning, we're only going to look at three verses, the last three verses, kind of where we left off the last time that we were in John. Now, to help everybody understand, there's so many people who are new here and haven't been really tracking with us through John. So we're going to give everybody kind of a backstory up, up up to this moment. And we're going to need to look at really three groups of people that are all involved in John chapter 18. And if we don't understand the history, we will miss the significance of what is happening as it applies to the gospel and our relationship to the gospel. So here's the scene in John 18, 37 to 40. It is, it's the end of Jesus' interrogation before Pilate. And Jesus was sent to Pilate by the Sanhedrin to be executed. And that's the group of people that we have to look at. So first of all, let's talk about the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin it really comes from a combination of two words, meaning seated together. Uh, these were Jews that were under the Roman rule. So Rome, during this time, would allow various uh, providence to self-govern themselves. So is, uh, the, the Jewish Jerusalem at this moment is underneath the Roman rule. And the Romans, what they were what's called polytheists. They believed in multiple gods. They didn't really care that. Israel believed in one God. They just didn't want it to affect their nation and affect their rule. So they said, listen, you gather yourselves together, a select group of judges is what they were known as, these 70 men, these 70 elders of Jerusalem or of of the Jews, and they would become the ruling elders as everything that had to do with civil and religious disputes. That's what their job was, the Sanhedrin. So basically the Sanhedrin made a deal with Rome. You can stay together as a nation and even continue to worship your religious beliefs. Just don't make an issue for us, and we won't make an issue for you. That's how uh, the whole uh, scenario was set up. So when Jesus' popularity began to grow, this threatened the power of the Sanhedrin that they had over the people. Jesus was drawing bigger and bigger crowds, demonstrating that he had the, uh, the, the, the power to perform miracles and then claiming to be God, which was blasphemy to the Sanhedrin. So if Jesus had a large enough following, 
Rome may come in and remove the power from the Sanhedrin because there's potential uprising. So they would bring an army in to, to, to shut down what Jesus was gathering by military force. Now, the Sanhedrin, these men were very aware of the Old Testament. They used it often against Jesus, trying to trip him up and prove that he wasn't the Messiah. And they did not care whether Jesus was proving to be the Messiah or not. You had the Pharisees running to the Sanhedrin saying, Jesus is performing these miracles. <laughs> they just said, we don't care. How do we put him to death? They, didn't, were, they were not looking for the Messiah. They wanted to maintain power. Uh, John chapter 11 and verse 45, there's this massive scene that just proves this very scenario. I know I keep telling you to go to chapter 18. Just put a finger there. We'll get there. We'll get there. John 11 says this, verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he had, what he had did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees uh, uh, gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for one, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Of course, he just made a prophesy he had no idea he was making. But the heart of the people was coming out. They wanted to preserve what they had. And Jesus was threatening this. This leads us actually back to John chapter 18, I promise. They wanted to execute Jesus, but they could not put anyone to death without the approval of Rome. Rome is the only one who had the power to put someone to death. So they sent, the Sanhedrin sent Jesus to Pilate to be executed. Now, they couldn't send him there to be executed for blasphemy because Pilate could care less what their religious beliefs were. So they had to send him there to be accused of insurrection, which was what would cause Jesus to be uh, 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 murdered on the cross or crucified on the cross. So this is what we have in verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so, so this is what they're presenting to Pilate. He is claiming to be king of the Jews. He's starting an upheaval. He's starting an insurrection. So Jesus, So Pilate wants to know, well, is this man making this claim or is it only the Sanhedrin who is making this claim? We're going to learn later in Matthew, Pilate figured out what they were doing. Pilate said to him, so, so you're a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate didn't get the riddle. We'll learn why here in a minute. Okay, so that's the first group of people. We need to, that's the Sanhedrins. That this conversation that Jesus is having with Pilate is going to make more sense if you understand what's going on with the Jews. That's the second group of people that we're going to look at. Those who are following Jesus. So throughout Jesus' ministry, you'll, if you recall, they're trying to, they're trying to bring Jesus in as to sit on the throne of David. And if Jesus sits on the throne of David according to the prophecy, then they will be set free from Rome. They will be, have a nation that will last for all of eternity underneath God and his protection. And that's what they want. But they're not listening to Jesus. And he keeps telling them, this world is not my kingdom. 
My kingdom is of another place. It's of another world. And he says, you have missed why I have come. I have come to rescue you from this world into my kingdom. And many times Jesus would perform miracles and they would rush upon him, the text would say, to inaugurate him as king and he would have to hide or disappear from their presence. Well, this began to frustrate them. And in doing so, as you will see here in a minute, the crowd became very angry with Jesus because he would not become their hero. He would not become their warrior. He would not become their king who would take back the throne. And this explains the hatred they end up having for him later in the story. The third group of people we have to look at, so the Sanhedrin's, the Jews, and now we have to look at the Roman government. If you're going to understand what's going on here and the complexity of the story of why John finds it so important, just tell us all this detail. Roman government. First century Roman government, Rome would send officials to Jerusalem during these special times because there was this mass influx of people into Jerusalem. It's during Passover, so millions of people coming in the city makes them a little nervous, you know, good looking like an army. We don't want them uh, causing this uproar. There's a little bit of this thing going on. So Pilate is sent as this governing official, and his job is to deal with civil actions, so, you know, problems, scuffles that end up coming up. And there was a scuffle that came up. There was an insurrection. There's three crosses that were made for three men who were about to be crucified for the very crime of insurrection. So Pilate's main mission was to keep the Jews happy and keep there from becoming any kind of uprising. And we know from historical sources and from John 19 that Pilate received pressure from the Jews to kill Jesus. So Pilate's trying to manage not only his homeland, but this massive influx of people that could cause problems. He could lose his job and be sent back home in shame. John 19.12 says this, For then on, Pilate sought to release him. It's like, man, this is way too complicated. And the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. And everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So they're putting pressure on Pilate. They're using his own law against him to crucify Jesus. And this is where you can see the power hungry of the Sanhedrin. This takes us back to the story at hand. So here's our three scenarios. The Jews are disappointed that Jesus would not take action, be their hero, and start a revolt against Rome and take back their land. The Sanhedrin are afraid of losing their power from Rome and want Jesus to take be taken off the scene. It was against Roman law for them to execute someone, so they had to manipulate Rome in order to carry out this dirty deed for them. And then thirdly, Pilate is afraid of losing his position as this ruling governor and being sent back to Rome in shame. And so he's trying to figure out and looking for a simple solution to solve this conflict. And so this is what Pilate comes up with. Let's read verse 37 again. Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king, Jesus answered. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? I want to point out, Jesus does not respond to him. He told him, if you were of the truth, you would know the truth. And because he had to ask, he is not of the truth. So he says this. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in this man. So you're wanting me to convict him of insurrection. He's not guilty. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now, you have to understand the sarcasm there. 
Okay. He is being very sarcastic. He's playing with them saying, well, Jesus isn't claiming it. You can't prove it. They cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. No, Barabbas was a robber. Robber here could be translated insurrectionist. We're going to see that's probably a better understanding. Listen, what John does here, he's done his entire letter. He just assumes you know stuff. He assumes you know your Bible. And so he leaves a lot of details out, being one of the shorter Gospels. And historically, we are not sure why this tradition of releasing a prisoner was started. It is not a part of the Hebrew tradition nor of the teachings of God. And so somewhere along the way, this tradition took place within the Romans. But Pilate is attempting to use this as a means of de-escalating this situation. He's realizing this is not a good situation he's finding himself in. He thought he would be clever and say, well, this man is clearly not a criminal that I can see. How about I just release him as, as a criminal because you want to say it and we'll just kind of call it a day. And the Jews didn't say no, we didn't want that, but it says they cried out, demonstrating a sense of anger and intensity. And they asked for not only Jesus to be crucified, but they wanted Barabbas to be released. So who is Barabbas? And why would they want him to be set free? Well, in order for me to help fully explain this, we're going to have to look at the Synoptic Gospels, which is the other three Gospels. And they give us a full history of what's going on with this person named Barabbas. Again, John is assuming we know who this is. First of all, Barabbas actually is a notorious hero amongst the Jews. Uh, Mark 27, 16 says, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So amongst the Jews, he was well known. And what was he well known for? Well, there was three men who were about to be executed for insurrection and murder. And Luke 23, 19 says, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection sh- uh, started in the city and for murder. So this is who Barabbas is. John's assuming you know this. So he's notorious. He's famous amongst the Jews for fighting back against Jerome. And he is in prison for insurrection, which is why he would be crucified. Now, there are three crosses that are constructed at this point. We know this within the narrative, but uh, we don't know for sure if these men, these other two that are crucified along, that were supposed to be crucified along with Barabbas, are captured at the same time he was or a part of his band. We don't know this. But you need to understand that Rome would execute people for a number of crimes, But for crucifixion, this was the most brutal of their execution. And I would even say it was really torture and designed to make a statement. This is what happens to those who attempt to revolt against Rome. They would be left on a cross for all to see, to warn others of trying to attempt the same. Jesus was taken down early because of the Sabbath, but normally they would be left up there and their bodies would be mutilated and they would be eaten by wild animals. So this is what is in store for those who want to fight back against Rome. And guess who knew this very well? The Sanhedrin. Now, I want to read the full narrative from Matthew's account, if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, because he provides some details that will help us understand the whole scene. Now that we understand everybody's part and who all the key players are, it'll help us understand the gospel that's about to come alive in this narrative that God designed to happen exactly in this way. 
Look at verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release the crowd, any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy, the Sanhedrin, that they had delivered him up. They were, they were envious of his power. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with this, with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood on, his blood on, be on ours, sorry, on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Of course, just because a man washes his hands does not mean that he is free from the guilt of crucifying an innocent man. Now there is one little last bit of important information I need to share with you to understand what just happened here. So Barabbas' name is actually pronounced Bar-Abbas. It's a combination of two words, Bar meaning son of, and Abba meaning the father. So in the Greek, in Matthew's letter, there's actually a name that appears in front of it, just in front of it. And many translations have left this out, and there's a long explanation why, and I spent way too much time reading it this week. But in the first and second centuries, uh, the, 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 as the scriptures were being copied, some of the scribes had a hard time putting this name in front of Barabbas, and you'll understand why in here in a second. But the name, which is actually a common name during this time, was the name Yeshua, or Jesus. So Barabbas' full name is Yeshua Barabbas, meaning Jesus Barabbas. So Jesus, Yeshua, the son of the father. Now I want to go back and read verse 17 again so you understand the significance of why Matthew would put this in here and why his name is being mentioned. So Matthew 27, 17. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas, and you'll understand why he says this next thing, or Jesus who is called Christ. He has to explain the difference between the two men. Now you can see why Pilate would say this. Who do the people choose? They chose their Messiah, who they originally wanted, a hero, a warrior, one who would fight for them. And who did they cry out for? Give us Barabbas. Now here is where I want to remind you that nothing that happened up to this point was by chance. It was not a domino effect. It was absolutely designed so that you and I would see it and see God's hand of the glorious picture that is about to take place. 
When Barabbas was released from prison and Jesus took his place, Jesus was then executed for the very crimes Barabbas had committed. Because what did the people cry out? What do you want me to do with him? Crucify him. And you were only crucified if you were guilty of insurrection. So Jesus, the son of God, took the place of Barabbas, the son of the father, and paid for his crimes. Could there be a more clear picture of what Christ's death on the cross signifies for all of us today? Jesus was the substitute for Barabbas, a guilty criminal who is on death row for insurrection, was then set free, and Jesus received the payment for his insurrection. Now, we are then told later on, Paul makes the application for us and uses similar language in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. He says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that was now in the work of the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. You could even say, and by nature, children of insurrection, like the rest of mankind. So we from birth, from the moment we are born, have been guilty of insurrection against God. We are revolting against his kingdom, committing murder in our hearts every time we have hatred towards another human being. And in this story, technically we could say we are Barabbas. We are the ones being set free. And Jesus is nailed to a cross in humiliation and torture designed for us, put upon him by the Father. This is one when Isaiah says, it pleased the Father to crush him. And Peter says, it's God's will of how Jesus was crucified. It was designed in that way so that you and I would see Jesus is the substitute for us. Remember when Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. That reputation is important in the narrative. Jesus had zero Accusation placed upon him by every counsel. His one guilty charge was he claimed to be God, and yet he proved that to be true. The reputation that Jesus carried to the cross, which is innocent, free of any crime, that reputation, we are told, we are clothed in it. So you are not just the substitute. God is not just the substituting Jesus for your crimes, but he's then substituting Jesus' righteousness for your unrighteousness. You literally change relationships from criminal to son, because what does Jesus say we are? The adopted children of God. So the gospel is the glorious picture of substitution, the replacement of Not only your crimes being replaced, but your needed obedience needing to be replaced. So as we think about this story and its narrative and all the parts that's going on, it's hard for me not to think, not only are we Barabbas, but we also sometimes have the attitude of the Jews. We have attempted to set ourselves 
as one who who deserves to be set free by God. And we not only deserve it, but we demand it. And we cry out and ask God to set us free. And yet we forget that it is not God's responsibility to save a nation nor to save us from pain and suffering. Let me say it this way. God has not wiped away every tear yet. That is a prophecy that will be fulfilled. And yet what we do is we look past our substitute. We look past the most glorious hope that we could have. We look past to that which is the most significant thing on this world, which is Christ's replacement for us. And we look to the temporal and demanding God as if we are God's master, that he fix what we think needs to be fixed. And so as a congregation, I can't but tell you, if you're asking me to preach verse by verse through God's word, you are going to be confronted with two truths. Unless you want me to stop preaching through the Bible, you're going to be confronted with two truths. You will always demand of God, which that he has never promised. And the gospel is what safely brings us home and reminds us that he has been our replacement. And that hope is what we cling to. It's what we grab onto. It's what we are constantly looking to. What is so sad is that we assume that we are better than what we are. The picture that John wants you to see is, do you understand that Jesus was crucified in your place? That's what you deserve. When you go and ask for mercy, do you understand what you're asking from God? You're asking that God would take his anger and put it on his son who is perfect. You're saying, God, take your anger off of me and put it on Jesus. And then take the love that you have for Jesus and take that by grace and put it on me. Don't ever flippantly just say, Lord, give me mercy and grace if you don't understand what you're asking for. And then how could you ask for more? This is what has just crushed me this week, that a God would replace me with his son, one who is deserving of such torture that Jesus has received. And so there is not much I can offer those who are suffering cancer or death or pain or loss or depression or weakness or frailty or whatever else that you're suffering. But the one thing I can tell you is that your weak faith, your sins against God and anger and hatred, your weakness and your lack of faith, all of that, all of that is covered underneath the mercy of God. All of that was carried on the cross with Christ. And so as with weak faith and feeble hearts, we long not only to be saved, but be restored. And the restoration is yet to come. This is why the book of Revelation is so precious. It's not because there's helicopters and weird scorpions. It's because at the end, Jesus comes back and he's victor. He's victor. The world looks at Christians and thinks we're weird because we follow a God who died. We look at it and look at the Bible and say, we follow a God who lives. And whoever intercedes for us, who took on our insurrection, who gave his us his perfect holiness, and he is not done with us yet. Because when he comes back, we will be as he is. So church, as John tells us, 
while we wait, we thus hope. And I know that pain of tomorrow, when you wake up, the pain of loss, the pain of frustration, the identity loss, all of that has so much weight. And the gospel is the only thing that can bring you that relief. So dig deeper into it. Don't assume you have fully understood it because we haven't even opened John chapter 19 yet. (laughs) It gets only better. Thanks for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee, where everyone is in equal need of grace. To plan a visit or to learn more about us, visit our website at gracereformed.org.